everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. So today we have come to the final episode of our For the Love of Giving series. And I think we maybe saved the most impactful episode for last. Um, I'm really glad and proud of this community where we can talk about hard things and complex problems that have just a lot of nuance and without necessarily clear solutions. And, um, and we're able to talk about situations filled with people at the intersections of margin and power, uh, where some of the most vulnerable members of our community fall through the cracks or are faced with pain. I think, um, you know, when we encounter problems like that, it's just easier to look away. It is when we maybe aren't close enough to it, or we're not in proximity to someone else's pain in that conversation, or it doesn't affect us in any way. It's just easier to turn our minds toward other things, lighter things, happier things. Um, especially when we all have our own stuff we're dealing with, I get it. Um, but we are, called to a standard of love. And I believe that deeply, you know, I do. And, and love loves its brothers and sisters. I think that's the bottom line. So today I'm talking with two people who are basically in the thick of some of the hardest work. Um, they are lending voice and support and love to two really, um, two communities who are suffering. So my first guest, you guys, is my good friend, Susan Ramirez. And you've heard me talk about her before because she is the CEO of National Angels, and they offer support for kids and their caretakers in the foster system. Um, she's got big, audacious, long-term goals, which we're going to talk about. Uh, and this is what Susan says about this work, which I love. She says, not everyone is called to foster. Not everyone is called to adopt, but everyone can make a difference to kids in our foster care system. And that is true. Wait till you hear how wonderfully marvelous her work is and how easy it is to join in. I've done work with the Austin branch of National Angels, and I, I can't wait for you to meet Susan and hear from her and learn about the work that they are doing and how we can help. Um, it's a fabulous conversation in which I cried for five solid minutes. So do prepare yourself for that. I couldn't, couldn't get that under control. Um, in our second half, I will be talking with John Huckins. And John is the co-founding director of the Global Immersion Project, which is a peacemaking training organization that equips um, people of faith to engage our very divided world in, in restorative ways. And so specifically, we're going to talk with John about his work at Global Immersion and what they've been doing to help families at the San Diego Tijuana border, which is just... Uh, if you follow me online, you know that my heart is there right now. And... I am deeply engaged with um, what can we do? How can we um, be good brothers and sisters to our um, neighbors who are suffering on the border? So I, I look forward to bringing the second half of the conversation to you too. But first up is my friend, Susan Ramirez, CEO of National Angels. And I'm telling you, you are going to love this one, you guys. So without any further ado, here we go. I am so happy to have you on today, my friend. This is... I mean, you're one of my favorite people in the entire world. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh my gosh, I'm so tickled. Uh, same. Um, so you and I have done quite a bit of work together um, in the Austin Angels chapter of National Angels. And you know how I feel about you. You know how I feel about your work. I just, I believe in you so much and I believe in angels. And um, so I've told my listeners, and of course, people who followed me for a while already know who you are and um, have seen your work, but... For those who didn't, I've told them a little bit about you, but I wonder if you could just sort of give a high-level view um, of, of you, who you are, and of National Angels, um, just essentially about your organization and the scope of the work that you do. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we started Austin Angels in 2010 uh, with the intent just for children to experience foster care differently. Um, And so we started by throwing community service projects where we would go in, um, we would do barbecues and picnics, then we would do days of beauty for girls at a local uh, shelter and home here in Austin. Um, and, And while that was good, The truth is, is that that wasn't changing the trajectory of children's lives. So we know through statistics what happens when kids age out of care. So for the first three years, that's what we did. And then we just began to have the conversation. What can we really do to make a lasting and greater impact? Because, you know, we would show up with things like bags and backpacks and, and things that children needed. And we still do that today, but we wanted to get to the root cause and figure out how do we create lasting impact and change. So we piloted a program, which you were actually a part of, in October of 2013, and we ran it until 2015. So we Mm -hmm. gave it a good bit of time to say, you know, is this even going to work? Yeah. And, uh, and, and what we found in that, in that pilot program was really the impetus for me to quit my career and decide to, to push the mission forward. So, um, quit my job in 2015 and we launched Austin angels, the love box program, which is the program that we do today that, um, this year has served 598 children, which I'm real pleased with. Uh, but we have a long ways to go because just in central Texas alone, there's about 5,600 kids. And on a national scale, there's about 423,000 children. Yeah, gosh. And our goal is pretty aggressive. We are trying to reach every single child and every family in foster care across the nation. So we launched uh, Austin and we ran that. uh, And then we piloted the chapter program of National Angels. We started in Amarillo, Texas. Um, We piloted that for two years. And in 2018, uh, we, um, uh, it's just amazing. I can't even believe this, but we have 22 chapters now um, that are either fully up and running or they're about to be up and running. I love it. Yes. So outstanding. I can't believe it. I remember when we first, when you first got the email from the Amarillo girls and you called me, that was our very first hit on the expansion of angels. And it was just like Christmas day. Would you talk just for a minute about, um, just the enormous outsized need needs, frankly, that our foster kids have. It really is. I really agree with you that it is one of our nation's great social crises. I, I, um, Will you talk a little bit about uh, when foster kids, well, what they face within the system and then what happens when they age out statistically? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the truth is, is that I do believe in this and I believe that every child should have the opportunity to grow up and reach their fullest potential. And so just a couple of statistics that was really the impetus for me to quit my job, to do this fully. You know, we we talk all the time and we, you know, believe in the sense of belonging and, and how powerful it is to have connection. Um, And so that is what we are trying to build. We want every child to feel fully seen, fully known, fully loved, and then equipped so that they can reach their fullest potential. So just a few statistics. Uh, We know that about 50% will not graduate high school. We know that because on average, within a two-year time frame, children will move seven different times. Mm. And so just to let that sink in for a moment, that's seven new mommies and daddies, seven new sets of friends, if they even make them, uh, seven new schools. And and what happens is every time they move, they're six months behind from an educational standpoint. So that's why 50% won't graduate. Of course. And then 97%, even though they have a full ride to any state school, 97% 97% will, will not obtain a college degree. That's right. And, uh, and, and, you know, this is who is human trafficked. And we know that 66% when they age out will either be uh, in prison, homeless, be human trafficked, or die within one year of aging out of care. Wow. And, and I just believe we can do better than that. And I believe there is hope and beauty in the foster care system. And I'm reminded of it every single day uh, because there are 
there are normal, average, everyday people who stand up and say, you know what, I'm not called to foster and I'm not called to adopt, but I care deeply about the children in my community and I'd like to, to play a part and do something. Uh, and, and so that's what's happening. It's just, you know, normal, everyday uh, people are making a difference in children's lives. And, and that's really exciting. It sure is. And, and you're right. I mean, just fundamentally, we can do better than that. Straight up, we we solve complex, nuanced, complicated problems every single day, and yet these are the pervasive statistics when it comes to our kids in foster. We positively can do better. So let me say this. Um, hats off to everyone listening who is a foster parent out there. I mean, oh my. Uh, just a few months ago, actually, when we were doing our parenting series on the podcast, we had on Jamie Amarine, and she is a mom who's been in foster to adopt and you and I both cannot say enough about foster parents who open their hearts and their homes to children. Um, so that said, one of the biggest needs of kids in foster, like you just mentioned, is a sense of belonging and that they matter. I mean, this is like building blocks right here. They belong and they matter. So many of those kids have been absolutely stripped um, of a any sense of familiarity and place, and so many of their problems, and I understand this too as a mom, uh, have to do with attachment, understandably. And so um, the thing about that is it translates to problems um, forming relationships everywhere, at school, at home, in the future. And so to that end, how would you say, how can we help these children feel safe and loved and like they matter? How do we help them have the emotional and educational resources to succeed, specifically even after they age out? Because your org has a couple of programs that helps kids here, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we have a program called Dare to Dream, and it actually starts with kids who are in high school, and we follow them through. And I think, you know, all people, but specifically kids, um, spell love, T-I-M-E, it's about just showing up and being consistent. Um, so in our program, we say that if you want to sign up to be a part of our program, you have to commit to a minimum of one year because there's so much turnover in these children's lives. And so um, you just commit to visit once or twice a month. More, uh, you know, is better. The more we can invest our time into these kids, um, that that is how they feel seen. That is how they feel heard. We said, get on the floor with them, read them a book, do flashcards, play a matching game, teach them how to cook, uh, be a mentor to them, you know, visit them at school and have lunch with them, teach them how to ride a bike. Yeah. I mean, as I'm listening to you talk is essentially, what does it just mean to be a good parent to any kid? It's exactly what they need. And it's not magical. It isn't some, it doesn't require superhuman strength or knowledge. Um, but rather, they're just kids. They're just kids who love what kids love, which is being loved. One of the kids in the Love Box program right now is um, Damien, and he's got a pretty powerful story. Would you tell it to my listeners? Yes, 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 yes. Damien is in a household where there are six teenage boys and is being raised by a single foster mom. And um, Damien's mom, when the Love Box group started in this household, um, you know, she had said to the Love Box group, listen, Damien, of all the boys in our home, has taken the most amount of abuse um, and the most amount of neglect of any child that I've ever had in my home. We have had over 50 boys in our home and he's got the worst case. And in fact, I could only get to about the first two pages uh, in his book, you know, that we got when we got him and we had to close it because Susan. it was so horrific. So Damien, when we came in to his home and into his life, he wouldn't even make eye contact. He was um, really, really, really um, withdrawn. You know, he didn't fit in at school. He had been in over 17 placements um, and he just struggled to build relationships, rightfully so. And um, so the Love Box group starts, you know, showing up month after month after month, just building him up, doing puzzles, you know, loving on him so well 
well, visiting him at school, um, really just loving on this boy well. Well, it had come time for uh, school, and he had gotten a brand new backpack with all of his supplies, and inside the backpack, there was some, I don't know, Dr. Seuss quote or something like that. And the love box leader said, Damien, we hear that you want to go out for the football team. So he is now in the seventh grade. And he says, you know, I do want to go out for the football team, but it's never going to happen for me. And the love box leader said, well, why? And he said, because I don't make good grades. In fact, I've never made a passing grade. I've never made anything more than a D or a C. And that little love box leader got down and said, you know what, Damien, we believe that this is your year. We're going to walk alongside you. We're going to help you get the grades that you need. And um, we said they um, had taken that Dr. Seuss quote, put it on his poster board bed and said, every morning when you wake up, we want you to read this out loud to yourself. We want you to know that we've already prayed before you have talked to God every morning that this is your year. And so Damien had brought home his six weeks uh, progress report card home, waving it in the air uh, as he was barreling in the front door. And the foster mom called and said, Susan, you're not going to believe this, but Damien, the little boy who has no self-esteem, the little boy who has never made good grades before, has just brought in his progress report card with straight A's. And she said to me that um, Damien had said, for the first time in my life, I had somebody that believed in me. And I didn't want to make a liar out of them. And so, you know, I just think when we hear stories like that, we have the power and the impact to show a little boy that your life matters and it matters deeply to me and it matters deeply to this group. And, you know, Damien is now on the football team and Damien is still in the same placement. Damien might not ever be adopted, but what we know is that he now has relational permanency. So we know that he is now a part of a group, uh, a football group, that he has self-esteem, that he's making good grades. And, and one of the best parts about our program, Jen, is that we have a 100% graduation rate, which means that kids can graduate high school. And these kids will grow up to become who they were always intended to be. If people will just walk alongside these kids and say, you want to make the football team? We're going to make it happen. You want to graduate? We're going to make that happen. Do you want to get your driver's license? We're going to open up a bank account. We're going to visit college campuses. We're going to visit military recruiters. We're going to do all the things uh, you know, maybe trade school, whatever, but we walk along them and we keep walking along them until they grow up. These kids don't want a hand out. They want a hand up. They want to grow up and contribute back to society like every single one of us do. And we have the power to change it. You know, it doesn't have to be like this. And one of the massive statistics is that, uh, you know, we hear that 80% of our prison population is made up of former foster kids. I'm sorry. I'm just sitting here wiping my face. I know. I do it every single day. But I tell you what, I cry more now over the redemption that takes place than I do over the sadness. Absolutely. Uh, and, And that's what's so great about this program is that I'm reminded of the beautifulness of humanity. And I tell you what, I guarantee you it'll change your life. No doubt about it. I mean, absolutely no doubt about it. And it's so interesting how... Um, you obviously have a lot of structure built into your program as you should and systems and processes, but the impetus is really just, um, love and care. And, and it feels like a nebulous lever to pull like, well, but what about the systems, you know, and, and that all, those are good questions to ask, but the power behind, we see you, we love you and you matter is it's just, it's monumental, um, the, the effect that it has. So I'm thinking about the people listening right now. Okay. If they're in a city that already has a chapter up and running or about to, how can, what can they do? If they are hearing your story and their heart is pounding and they've got tears running down their face in their car and they would like to know more about potentially what, what, what does it mean to start a chapter in my town? What do they do? And then, um, if, if they're just in a place where there's not an angel's, um, chapter and they're not in a capacity to build one, 
what does anybody do? Like right here, right now, right this minute, where they live, as they are, um, to step into the world of kids in foster care? So good. Okay, so question number one is they can go to nationalangels.com to find the you know closest angels chapter. Um, like we said, we have 22 chapters. We have six in Texas. We have two in Washington. We've got two in Tennessee. So we've got chapters all over the place. Um, so they can go to nationalangels.com. They can click on um, you know the chapter. And then all they have to do is, is fill out a form that says, I want to know more information. I want to sign up to be on your newsletter. So that's the first step. If you're interested and you feel called um, to start a chapter on the National Angels website, as you scroll down to see all the chapters at the very end, it says start your chapter here. You can click on that. Uh, It will come to us. We will contact you and we will give you all the information about what it looks like to start a chapter. And then for anybody else, there's two things you can do. One, Um, you can go to any chapter and make a donation because your donation directly correlates to how many children we can serve. So if you'd like to make a donation right now, it's the holidays we would gladly accept and be honored and and grateful for any donation. Um, And then the last thing is, if, if there is not an angels in your city, but you care deeply about children in foster care, What I would say for you is go to the old Google bar and type in foster care placement agencies or foster care support. There are tons of organizations all over the country that help. And and I would just reach out to them and say, hey, what can I do? How can I serve? How can I help? Um, Because what I know is that most nonprofits don't fail because of resources. They fail because they're not resourceful. So you just make the call to them and say, listen, I want to come and be an extra set of helping hands. Mm -hmm. What can I do? It's good. Um, Yeah. And what I want everybody to hear, and they they maybe picked up on this based on what you said, but um, for your volunteers that get involved in the work of angels, Again, this is this beautiful space that isn't, these are for folks that are like, I, I'm not in a position to foster myself, um, but this is what I do. So, you know, the, the groups that work with the kids in your chapters are, I mean, they run the gamut, right? These are groups of friends that come together to, um, can you just talk just a teeny little bit more specifically about what that program looks like, the Love Box program, and who comes in to sort of support and volunteer in that space? That's right. So um, I'm just going to use Austin because that's where I'm at. So if you are in the Austin area, you went online, um, you said, I want to be a love box leader and find out what it is, is we tell you get with the people that you already do life with. So like Jen, when we were launching the pilot program, we were a part of uh, a little motorcycle club. Both of our husbands ride Harleys and we said, we're going to, we're going to do this together. And so every single one of us financially contributed to the cause and we we focus on three areas of impact in the program. So the first is intentional giving. So when we launched this pilot, we said, okay, what are the needs of this family? How can we serve them the best? And what we knew is that um, we were supporting a single mom that had a couple of kids. And so we would show up with things like toilet paper and paper towels and laundry soap and snacks. And then depending on the month, it depended on the needs. So, uh, you know, in January, we showed up with brand new coats. And in February, we would show up with things for Valentine's. Um, And so we, every single month, we would assess what are the needs and then we would meet those practical needs. So that's the intentional giving component. And then the second one is relationship building. So let's say you get paired with um, two little boys, Jimmy and Johnny, and they always wanted to be in baseball. They had a real desire for that. The Love Box group would then show up with equipment, go to games, take them to practice and just build a relationship around what their giftings were and what they wanted to do. And then the last component is mentorship. So we had talked about earlier, sitting and reading to a child, engaging with their schoolwork, making sure that they're on track. And for our older kids, getting a driver's license, opening up a bank account, 
filling out a job application and yeah. helping them build a resume. And so we say, get with the people that you do life with, because there is a financial component. Um, but the money that you are giving goes directly to the family. It doesn't come through the agency. So um, we'd say, okay, Jen, you buy um, two coats. And then, you know, Sandy, you buy uh, two pair of pants. And everybody would just come together. We usually share a meal together, build the beautiful boxes. And then a handful of us would go and just visit the family every month. Um, but we, we just bring them into our community. We say, you are now a part of our family. And, uh, and that's where the real magic is. Right. And, and there's a one-year commitment, but a lot of the a lot of the groups just keep going. Oh, they um, keep going. Yeah. Those yeah. relationships are so strong. I mean, I know that Shauna and Trace's group, uh, some friends of ours at this point, the foster moms that they support are their friends now. That's, oh. They literally brought them into their friend circle, and right. and this is just a long term relationship. And I want my listeners to think outside of the box for it. I mean, this can be it can be a, you and your like big, huge, extended family. It can be your group of best friends. It can be your little neighborhood bunch. It could be your book club. It could be um, you and your coworkers. It could be your Bible study group. It can be your church small group. I mean, the sky's the limit here. That's right. Um, for how creative you can get. And really, and sincerely, because, you know, we've done this work too. When you share the load amongst several families, I mean, heck, for me and Susan's group in our motorcycle club, we had at least eight or ten. nine families, yeah. 10 even. Yeah. I mean, yeah. really, it's not, it's, it's, it's not an outsized burden on anybody. And we shared it and we carried it together. And what a joy. And so um, this is why we, I'm behind you. Let's see it in every city. Let's, let's have every foster kid touch. And I mean, honestly, Susan, a 100% graduation rate is just bananas. I mean, I honestly, it's bonkers. That is so against the trend it is such an, a phenomenal um, statistic to come out of your program. So that should tell my listeners all they need to hear about does this work or not. Um, so look, this is our last episode in our um, series on giving. And so we're asking every guest in this series just three quick questions. And I'd love to ask you too if you don't care. Here's the mm -hmm. first one. Um, what is the most memorable, memorable gift someone ever gave you? This is so hard. You know, yes. um, honestly, I would say the best gift that was ever given to me was a job that I went out for. So when I, um, right before I decided to leave my job, I knew that God was calling me for a long time to leave corporate America, but I just kept pressing forward and kept pressing forward, trying to climb the proverbial ladder at the same time that I was doing Austin Angels. And I went out for a management job and I didn't get it. And I was just heartbroken. And I remember when I didn't get the job, I had a girlfriend say to me, oh my gosh, this is so exciting that you didn't get the job. And I was like, well, that's a stupid thing to right. say. You're not my friend. <laughs> and, um, and she said, no, 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 this is so exciting because this just means God has something different in store for you. And uh, honestly, the best gift that was given to me was not getting that management job because had I had gotten it, I probably wouldn't have started Austin angels, um, you know, and really, I think I, I mean, I just know it was all in God's timing and God's planning, but sometimes we think that, you know, gosh, we really want something. Um, and then we don't get it and we're like heartbroken, but the truth is, it's the best thing that ever happened to us. So I would say that that's a great answer. Um, okay. So besides your own, do you have another, um, either charitable organization or nonprofit or group that you really believe in that you love what they do also? Yeah, I know you just had Scott from charity. Water. I sure did. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, his charity has always been one that I have really admired. You know, it's so hard to build something from the ground up to become that monumental. I mean, you know, when we talk about charities like United Way and Red Cross and Big Brothers and Big Sisters, they operate off of a ginormous budget and they've been around for 50 years. It is so hard to build something um, from the ground up to get it to that place. Uh, and so I, I really admired Scott's leadership. Um, so him, but then also, you know, I love that Alan Graham I do um, too. with, uh, mobile loaves and fishes and community first. I really adore him. Uh, he is a living saint. I mean, a saint among us. 
Um, no doubt about it. Everybody listening, I'll link over to Alan's work. He, he, his work is here in Austin also. You, you'll just not believe your eyes. Um, last question, and this is, we ask everybody this in every series, and it can be serious, and it can be silly, and it can be big, or it can be small. You just pick. Um, but it's Barbara Brown Taylor's question, which is, what is saving your life right now? You know, I would say that I just wake up every day and thank God that I have these people and and really this staff, man. Mm. We are um, serious about the work that we do. you are. Yep. So that's what's saving me. I love it. And I love you. And I love your team. And I love the work of angels. And I just think this is the beginning, honestly, of the story. And there's just so much ahead and this star will continue to rise and burn brighter. And, um, it's just going to be a, it's just going to be delight you and I to sit 10 years from now and just marvel at what's happened in 10 years. And then 10 years after that, it is, I, um, I believe in you. I know that's going to happen. I have faith in that as Ellen would say. Yes. I have faith for it, sis. Okay, so just tell everybody real quick, you mentioned it earlier, but um, just quickly, where can people find you, find, uh, where do they go if they're, if they're interested? Yeah, so I um, am not on Facebook. I am on Instagram. I am Miss Susan Ramirez. And then um, please uh, follow Austin Angels Nonprofit on um, social media. And then, of course, National Angels um, is also on social media. So we'd love to connect. We'll have that all linked over on the transcript page, you guys, at jenhatmaker.com. Hey, thanks for being on, friend. Onward with your day. Just changing the world. Go do it. I love you. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, bye. Okay, guys, breaking in here for just a minute. Um, I probably don't have to tell you how much I love a good story. That should seem obvious to you at this point. So whether it's one that I can tell from my own life um, or one that I can enjoy from someone else, sharing stories is an enormous part of not just my life and my work, but how we all stay in community, which is why I absolutely love StoryWorth. So StoryWorth was founded by a guy, essentially, who just wanted his dad to record his amazing stories. And the family enjoyed the process so much that they launched in April of 2013 so that families around the world can share, like, basically in the same gift. So StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for your beloved people to share their stories um, with with these weekly emailed story prompts, honestly questions that you've never even thought to ask. Um, So here's how it works. You purchase a subscription for the folks that you love and every week, StoryWorth sends them an email with a question about their life. And so they can reply to this email with their story or they can record it over the phone by calling the StoryWorth number. All the stories, of course, are private and only shared with family or friends that you choose. And after a year, their stories are bound into this beautiful keepsake book. So I sent StoryWorth to my mom. Um, I recently started asking my mom some stories about high school and what it was like to live in the 60s um, during the civil rights movement. And I could not believe the stuff my mom was telling me. I mean, stuff I never even heard. And so this is actually was my inroad to StoryWorth and how I got to thinking, oh my gosh, our people have so many things to tell us. Our parents, oh my gosh, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles. So I can't wait to see what we have collected in my family at the end of the year. We would love for you, our listeners, to be able to try this too. So if you visit storyworth.com slash for the love, you can subscribe for $20 off. So check it out today at storyworth.com slash for the love and get your family story started today. Okay, let's get back to the show. Hey guys, uh, welcome to the second half of the show. A couple of weeks ago, I with six other women in my church, some of who had already been, um, went down to McAllen, which is a border town here in Texas with a really large port of entry for immigrants and asylum seekers. And um, we are just super committed as a, just as a faith community, first of all, our church, but also just me as a believer and as a leader um, 
to engage what is happening at the border, to learn as much as possible about the very complicated realities of our immigration system, and to invest however we can in suffering and in some cases what feels like human rights abuses and family separation and just a loss and a lack of dignity for human folks. And so uh, personally, I'm deeply invested in this work right now. And so I think that's why I'm so pleased um, to welcome someone who's offering hope and help to people at the border right now. So like I said earlier, John is the co-founder of the Global Immersion Project, which works to equip people with tools to become everyday peacemakers. And so we talk about um, what that means at home. We're going to talk about how we can remember that every person, whether we think they are good or bad, bears the image of God and how we can offer help to those who really need it most right now. And so I would love for you to help me welcome to the show, John Huckins. I am so happy um, to have you on, John. Thank you so much in advance um, for taking the time to be here. I've told our listeners a little bit about you, but I wonder if um, if you could just tell us a little bit more about the Global Immersion Project um, mm-hmm. and how it came to be. Can you tell us that story and just in general the sort of work you do? You bet. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jen. It's, it's a gift to be with you all. And yeah, Global Immersion started in 2011 and, and it really came out of um, came, out, came out of some really unique experiences in our global village when uh, me as a dominant culture white guy began to submit to and learn from people who looked and thought and believed differently than I did and specifically in places of, of global conflict. So it was in 2011 uh, that my colleague Jerry and I actually studied in Israel and Palestine to specifically study the conflict there and how we gain tools to take peace seriously. And it was through our seminary at Fuller. And we were learning from some of the most, you know, academically astute scholars in peacemaking. But far more compelling than that was learning from these Jewish and Christian and Muslim uh, peacemakers on the ground in Israel and Palestine who were daily giving their lives for the costly, subversive work of peace. And as we're learning from them, we, we begin to ask a set of questions like here, here I, at that time, I was a, a pastor of a traditional church and, and seminary. How is it that I've gone through this much of my life in the Christian world and have no theology for peace, let alone any kind of practice for it, let alone any kind of understanding of the implications for not understanding peace and how that impacts our, our global village. So, you know, we're beginning to learn from these folks who are on the front lines of conflict. And I'm finding that I not only have been complicit in the oppression that they experience every day, but I've been apathetic towards it, and I've been completely blind to it. And so um, in that paradigm, we, we, we began to bring over some delegations from our church to learn from our, our, our pals in the Middle East and Jews, Christians, and Muslims and say, hey, will you teach us what it looks like to take peace seriously? Because we say we follow the Prince of Peace, but we have no idea what that means. And uh, it just began to, to wreck our, our, our churches and our communities, and it impacted the way we saw our neighbor, the way we saw our enemy, the way we understood our practice on our own streets, the way we understand our connection here in the empire to places of conflict out uh, in the Middle East. And and that is really what birthed the Global Immersion Project to say, hey, we have to to create a mechanism specifically within the U.S. American church to actually train in the work of peace. What is a theology for peace? What's a practice of it? How do we destigmatize it from this kind of 30,000-foot fairy tale and say, no, this is central to what it means to follow Jesus, and it's it's our opportunity now to roll up our sleeves and move towards conflict with tools to heal rather than to win or to destroy. And mm. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Uh, can you expand a little bit on, um, just bring it down 10,000 feet in, let's just say. Yep. Um, yep. Here are some of the key um, practices that you have learned and are teaching. Here are some of um, sort of the approaches and postures that you mean. Because you're mm-hmm. right, the idea, the word of peacemaking, peace in yep. general, it's yep. nebulous to most of us. Um, we yep. don't live in places of conflict. And so... Mm-hmm. And we're, we're weirdly detached um, from, from places where peace is absent. I'd love to hear you just dial that in a little bit more and, and teach us a little bit what you teach others. You bet. Yeah. So we define peace as a holistic repair of relationship. 
And, and this really comes from understanding that the biblical stories are central, you know, sacred text, that the mission of God ultimately is restoration and that peacemaking is a vocation of God's people, very simply. And so how do we pursue that peace? How do we pursue this holistic repair relationship? Well, fr- from our perspective, we have to begin to build tools that allow us to do that. So this could be right around, like we're in the holiday season right now, we're coming up on Christmas. And what does it mean to actually enter into this this holiday table where inevitably there's some discomfort, there's some conflict, and to not see conflict as a problem, but see conflict as an opportunity? What if, what if conflict is the most dynamic laboratory for genuine relationship? We just need tools to engage it well. So typically peace has, has been seen as this either unattainable, you know, reality at 30,000 feet, or when we experience conflict, we, we, we enter into fight or flight, right? Like we, we see it and we don't know how to engage it. So we either get angry and enter it poorly, or we just run away from it because we're paralyzed. And we're saying, no, peace is actually not passive. We have to be proactively moving towards conflict. So around our holiday tables, what does that mean? Well, it means that we actually enter into that space prepared to listen longer than feels comfortable. When, that, when Uncle Joe is beginning to spout his political, his partisan political lines, how do we listen longer? How do we enter into those spaces seeking to understand rather than to be understood? Because most of us come into those spaces with agendas. So whether it's an interpersonal space like that or it's looking at issues on our streets, how do we get curious about the reality of our neighbors, the systems that have been created to allow some to flourish and some not to? And how are we, as peacemakers, saying you know, we actually are sometimes called to to dismantle broken systems that are bro- that are breaking people. It's not a, a passive action. It's actually proactively destabilizing kind of the pseudo peace where some of us are comfortable and good, mm-hmm. and others are getting run That's over. Good. Every day. That's good, and it's hard what you're saying. Super hard. Yeah, this it goes against the grain. I I notice a lot and and sometimes even more so inside um, the faith community that tension is a great deterrent. Um, it, it has this outsized effect on what we are willing to say or not say um, because we are so conflict diverse. And so it, it it's funny because I, um, I, I at least attempt to be a peacemaker in my world too. And which, as you just so aptly mentioned, a lot of times it means dismantling unjust systems or calling them into question or, uh, you know, sounding the alarm when they only work for the flourishing of a few. And that is frequently met with um, just opposition, um, as in you are causing conflict. That's the, that's the critique. By saying these things, you are causing division, you are causing conflict. And I realize how deep these waters run um, for us, how hard this work is. Um, yeah. And even just to name it for what it is, that this is not creating tension when you call, when you just name it. That's right. Um, can you talk a little bit more, uh, one of the things that you say, um, your idea of becoming an everyday peacemaker, which I appreciate you saying that um, because sometimes the just the maybe the notion of peacemaking it feels so it feels so big it feels so broad it feels like the systems are so over our heads um, uh, but really the idea of being an everyday peacemaker is for all of us uh, it's something every person can engage can you can you talk about becoming an everyday peacemaker what you mean by that yeah I mean really it, it's an invitation not to a programmatic add-on or a political treaty, but into a, a way of life. It, it's embracing a way of life that um, that looks more like a cross than a sword. You know, it's embracing the reality that we follow an others-oriented, enemy-loving God. And so how does that inform every single interaction we have uh, around our tables, on our streets, and in our, in our global village? And, you know, for us to, to be everyday peacemakers that and to see this as a way of life, we have to understand that there's some work that has to be done in us, first and mm, foremost. That's you good. Know, Thomas Merton would say that until we disarm the violence within ourselves, we can't participate in disarming the violence of our world. That's and so, good. So, so many of us carry so much pain and so much trauma mm. and so many uh, re- react like we have these triggers and we can actually just be perpetuating conflict and division rather than actually contributing to uh, towards a holistic repair relationship, toward peace. And so an everyday peacemaker is someone who who's doing that confessional work and also 
proactively moving towards the brokenness, the injustice, the conflict right around them. And so I can't prescribe what that's going to look like for someone. It's based on their context. It's based on your life in Austin and mine on the streets in San yeah. Diego and my friends in Tijuana. I mean, this is, again, this isn't, um, this isn't a formula. It's an invitation to a way of life. And we ultimately see that over and over in the life and teachings and death and res- resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that, to, to see that, that the messianic king came not on the back of the white horse of the Roman Empire, but in the posture of a child and in in the ultimately a, a, a death and resurrection reality um it shapes our life not just a, an idea so let me um put this specific and personal tension point in front of you and i would just love to hear your thoughts on it how um how do we remember that everybody out there everyone we know everyone we come in contact with is an image bearer of god specifically when people are hurting each other, um, when people in power are exploiting the vulnerable, this is a t- this is where the rub is for me. How do we check our rage, honestly, and 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 choose to react as someone who remembers that everybody in this scenario is somehow a child of God? Like, what does peacemaking look like there? with injustice, with exploitation, um, with power differentials. That to me is where really the rubber meets the road, where this work is the hardest and the most complicated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, some of the nuance, Jen, that it is a struggle for many Christians in the United States is we, we struggle to understand the, the, the difference between systems and individuals that we actually have a responsibility to get angry at broken systems. <laughs> and there's broken systems that are breaking people but it doesn't mean that the people that are stuck within those systems are inherently evil. And we have to be able to parse those out. Like I, I'm, I'm good friends with the, the chief of uh, the Border Patrol chief here in San Diego who does some stuff that drives me insane. In fact, there's realities that are happening right now on our border that he contributes to that are, are so frustrating. At the same time, this is an image bearer. This is someone I'm in relationship. Do I, do I, um, do I demonize and dehumanize him, or do I actually do the work to act, to, to participate in in fixing broken systems? Like we we again, this goes back to disarming the violence within ourselves and seeing that we are all on a journey. That we have to have the kind of grace that others have had on us when we were you know five steps behind where we mm, are right. It's good, and and we have to ask the question in this moment. You know, because this is where we begin to stigmatize and demonize people who look or think or believe or act differently than we do. Well, who have I been taught to see and who have I been taught not to see based on my upbringing or my politic or my theology? Um, who, who are those people that remain in our blind spots? And it could be it could be the very person in, in power. It could be the, the person on the margins that we have chosen not to see because it's not comfortable. But in all this, the last thing I'll say is, is we have to get proximate and um, I was sitting with a, a, a sheikh who's a he's a teacher, a, a Muslim teacher in Jerusalem. He teaches at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third most holy site in all of Islam. And I was there bringing a delegation of Christian pastors to, to learn from him. And we were sitting with him and, and I'm like, hey, sheikh, uh, help, help us deal with this reality we have in the States called Islamophobia. Like we're wow. terrified of Muslims. Yeah. And his response to us was so gracious, but so brilliant. He said, you have to stop learning about us and start learning from us. Oh, wow. Gosh. He was inviting us to get proximate, like get around the table. Don't just hear about us from the sidelines, get in the game and sit and share tables with us. So if it's those in power that drive you insane, um, how does it, how do we, how do we get close? How do we seek to understand? How do we critique the systems and love the people Mm. as we need to be loved ourselves. Mm. Truly, truly holy and sacred and challenging work. I mean, this is narrow path stuff here. Um, I, I want to turn our attention to something that you mentioned because this is, um, gosh, I'm just, I'm with you right now on this and I'm excited to learn from you. I want to talk about the crisis at the border a little bit. Can you just give us, first of all, some background here? Why are um, people seeking asylum right now in the United States from what you've heard. Of course, you are very proximate. Um, what are you hearing from these mothers and fathers and young adults? You bet. Uh, first thing I'll say is it's not uncommon to have uh, a significant number of asylum seekers or quote-unquote caravans coming to our southern border. I will say it's unique in, in its size in this current one. Um, some people are just tuning in for the first time to this reality, but it's one that's been happening for years. And 
you know, I was sitting with um, a woman named Ingrid who uh, she had three kiddos and I was with her in a, a shelter in Tijuana, a Salvation Army shelter for women and children. And she was generous enough to share her story um, with a few of us. And she had fled from El Salvador three months prior with her three kids after her husband was killed by cartels. And she literally had to grab those three kids and run out of town because uh, the cartel then put a $50,000 bounty on the mm. head of each one of her children and said, wow. if you don't pay us these 50000 we will kill your kids one right. by one. And like, this is the reality. So, And then she travels, as you said, 3,000 miles north, which, yeah. by the way, women traveling on this journey, 80% of them are sexually assaulted in right. some form. It, it's a, It's not a journey that that anyone would want to go on, but in the conditions she was in, she had no choice for the mm. flourishing of her kids. Um, and then we sit with her in this shelter in Tijuana and, and her and her kids are, you, you can only imagine the trauma, you know, that they're yes. engaging and they're, they're pleading their case. They're trying to get a credible fear hearing, which is what asylum seekers do, That's which right. is a legal action at our border, um, to, to escape violence. And, um, this, why are people you ask fleeing? There's those those are the stories happening over and over and over. Right. I sat with a three-year-old boy, boy, Carlos, down. I was waiting uh, with my kids. We had four kids, and we went down and hung out with the families as they were waiting for their number to be called last week. And, you know, a three-year-old boy was describing his home by just holding his finger up and pretending like it was a gun. Yeah. And nine-year-old Francisco is talking about hiding under his desk, you know, mm. at school because of the violence, you know. So there's those realities, but we also have to understand as students of conflict that this is a systemic reality and it's been happening right. since the U.S. intervention in that region in the 80s mm-hmm. that pushed refugees to our border and into our streets, into L.A. specifically, into impoverished neighborhoods, which led to gangs. Sure. And then we deported those gangs back to Central America and those gangs exist now and they're the ones creating the violence that's then leading again, to a reverse migration back to our border. So this isn't just a one-off. This is a systems issue, but there are individuals that we're called to care for in the midst of it. So it's a both-and. That's that's the individual systems thinking I'm talking about. I was down in McAllen last week, which is um, a, a big point of, of entry here in Texas. And all of the workers that we spoke to also, the um, those who worked in immigration, those who were um, public defenders and sort of in the justice system somewhere along the line, aid workers, they all said the same thing, that um, there's a great deal of this just simply either sensationalized or it's just new to people. But they yeah. said the truth is this is what we, you know, we handle immigrants and asylum seekers all the time. And this yep. is not, uh, caravans aren't new. Um, that's not a first time thing either. And so there is some important sort of intellectual work here to, to learn, to study, to, to go beyond just sensationalized headlines and say, what's actually the history here and, um, what is worth pressing an alarm over and what is really just sort of being used, um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you've learned in terms of the family separation, because I think we can, there's a, we all have a lot of complicated and confusing ideas about immigration, about refugees, about asylum seekers. Um, but the separation of the families feels like this has hit a real, um, just a real painful nerve for most people watching. Can you talk about that a little bit? What you have learned? What do you think we can do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we we have to understand in my mind that this is a a binational reality and partnership that has to exist. We have to see um, we have to see ourselves in these families. Like we can't just fall into either the political binary or um, or keep such a distance that we don't understand that these people are are no different than us. Like we have to see the humanity, the dignity, the image of God in these folks. I mean, right here at our border. Um, where where we're working right now, you know, one of our peacemaking training initiatives is here on the border to help people understand the human reality of immigration and give them tools to engage as peacemakers. And so in, in San Diego, what it looks like are, um, you know, you have these asylum seekers who are getting into the states, waiting for their hearings to see if they can actually receive asylum. Well, they're detained by ICE and then they're either um, sent to their families or um, released onto the streets. And so right now we literally have, um, I got a, I got a text last night that 134 people had been dropped at the local Greyhound Greyhound station and don't have any resources to find shelter or find family. And 
And sometimes these are families that have been separated. The kids are in a different detention center or their parents are in a different detention center. So not only are they vulnerable to just the, the reality of, of life on the streets, but you're separated from your kids and you're, and you're enduring this kind of the, this trauma of disconnect that is um, impossible. There's more and more surveys that, are, surveys that are coming out to describe the, the, the PTSD of these kids. Even if they're separated for a short amount of time, it does permanent damage. And so this is, this is not just a political issue. This is a human one. That's for right. those of us that are kingdom people, seeing our primary allegiance to the kingdom of God and, and subservient to that as our allegiance to the United States of America, how are we seeing these through a kingdom lens and then engaging and leveraging our influence as U.S. citizens? We actually, as those in priv- people in privilege like myself, we sometimes need to lay down our privilege. Other times we need to leverage it. And right mm, now, good. half of these families, it's our moment to leverage it, it's good. to change the systems, to bring awareness and so um, we, we can't see this as, a, as a, them as one-off projects for us to fix, but as, as gifts to receive uh, and, and enter into long-term commitment to their flourishing. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. I, uh, and, and I don't think we should underestimate what it means for us to um, use our privilege as leverage uh, against unjust systems and policy. And, um, you know, we sat across from a public defender last week and, and she reminded us that it was public outcry, um, yep. that, uh, w- resulted in the executive order that stopped forced family separation. Um, although as you mentioned, it is positively still happening. Um, yep. but it, it, you know, she said there would have been no policy change had sort of this collective voice from United States citizens, not just rose up and said, no way, not this is inhumane and we won't have it. And so, um, I was remember, I was reminded that our voices do matter to your point. And they are not inconsequential. And um, it is our responsibility at this point to keep our foot on the gas here and not look away. And um, how if, if, if I have a listener right now and they're hearing you talk about this, um, specifically um, in terms of your organization, what is something they could do? Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, something they can do. Right now is we've actually built a borderlands fund, and that is contributing specifically uh, to these partners south of the border to create dignifying long-term shelters for these families to get on their feet and discern whether they can actually make this credible fear case, or if they need to stay put in Tijuana, or if they can find infrastructure back home. Um, so we're working hard right now to offer the short-term needs. Like we, we just bought an industrial stove for a, sh- a shelter yesterday, uh, but we're trying not to do it from a paternalistic perspective. How do we do this in partnership in, in a posture of solidarity rather than charity? Good. And so people can participate with that. Uh, we've spent years building these relationships and we invite them to participate with us in supporting, um, supporting the locals. And also for us, we would invite you to come experience the border yourself. And we host these what we call immersion trips, immigrants journey immersion trips, to come down to the border and see and experience the reality and, and be given tools for how to engage not only this, but the, the conflict that's real to you on your streets. That's and, great. Um, this isn't just about showing up in the moment. It's about participating in a movement. So we're the kind of people who show up in these moments every single time that's they happen. Great. They are not going to stop happening. That's so great. So um, where can people find you? If they want to hear more, they want to learn more, they may be ready to jump right in already. Where, where would they go? Yeah, um, I'm on social media myself, John Huckins, H-U-C-K-I-N-S, on all the platforms. Global Immersion, the Global Immersion Project is our organization, uh, website, and all the social media. Uh, one really tangible way is to actually text the word PEACE to the number 66866. Uh, and that'll put that'll actually send you a 30-day practice-based orientation for what does everyday peacemaking look like. It's a great on-ramp. Um, we also had a book called Mending the Divides that outlines the theology and peace that came out last year that would be worth picking up. That's fabulous. I'm going to have all that over on my website, you guys. It'll be at jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab. We'll have all of this spelled out, links to everything. That's your one-stop shop here. Um, I really am grateful for you and for your team and your work. I appreciate your posture so very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I am nodding my head with every word that you're saying right now, and I appreciate you leading the way right now, especially on the border. So thank you for your work. I wonder if I could just ask you, these are questions we're asking everybody in this whole series. Um, here's the first one. 
on this um, giving series. What is the most memorable gift someone ever gave you? Oh, baby. I know, um, right? I'm going to go a little philosophical on this one okay. and say uh, perspective. Mm. Um, and it was my friend Milad, who's a, a Palestinian Christian, who I, on my first trip to the Middle East was on this Holy Land tour where I was going to look at the, the Holy Stones and uh, hadn't realized there were a lot of holy people that I wasn't having an eye for. And in one evening on the rooftop of a hotel in the old city of Jerusalem, we're talking about everyday life. And he looks at me and says, John, why do your people think I'm a terrorist? I'm a Christian just like you are. I follow Jesus. But you look at all these holy sites every day and pray for your meals every morning when your sisters and brothers are experiencing daily occupation and oppression. And basically, he was just waking me up to my blindness, to my privilege, to my contribution to conflict rather than my contribution to peace. Uh, and it just wrecked me. I'd say it was it was my conversion moment to, to follow Jesus. When that was moment. that? 2009. Yeah. Um, that is powerful. How about this? Besides your own, um, do yes. you have another organization that you love, that you follow, that you learn from, that you believe in? You bet. Um, actually, the House of Hope, uh, which is a nonprofit in the West Bank, in Bethany, that's led by, come to find out, Milad and his wife. After that conversation, ah. we followed him and said, hey, tell us about your life. And because uh, he worked at our hotel and he said, well, the reason I work at a hotel is to fund this nonprofit in the West Bank that works with kids who are experiencing trauma of violence because they're, they live in daily occupation. And so their work is amazing. We support them. Uh, Casa del Migrante, House of the Migrant in Tijuana is beautiful. And right now we spend a lot of time with them. We share lots of meals with migrants in their infrastructure and holistic care of that community is awesome. So we support them as well. Oh, that's great. I'm going to, we'll link to them too, everybody. Great. Um, so you can see the work that they're doing. Fabulous. Okay. And finally, this one, this is our favorite question from Barbara Brown Taylor. And we ask every guest, every series, so this good. question, isn't she so great? Oh my gosh. Oh, I love her. Uh, and this can be as serious or as silly or as big or as small as you want. So up to you, which is this, what's saving your life right now? Saving my life right now is YMCA childcare. <laughs> no doubt that was the easiest one of three. That's outstanding. <laughs> we, have, we have four little kids who are oh, under man. eight. And oh, bro. My wife and I can go to the YMCA and they have two hours of free childcare and we can look each other in the eyes. And at least if we can't muster out words, we can sit in silence and have coffee and <laughs> empathize with the state of our lives. So. <laughs> Thank Listen, God for you are in the weeds. I remember, I mean, we have a bunch of kids too. And when they were all little in those ages, I have never in my life been more committed to a workout routine than the YMCA um, during it. those years. Cause I'm like, well, you know what? Maybe I'll just sit here and drink a smoothie. I don't know. Yep. Um, but I, I'm just going to sit here. No one's going to ask me a question. So <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, thanks for being on the show today, John. I really appreciate what you're doing and I'm excited to rally my community around your work and around, um, not just your work at the border, but, um, what you're, what you're teaching us right now, what it means to be a peacemaker. Gosh, the world's starving for them, just starving for peacemakers right now. So, um, great to meet you and great to have you. And thanks for your time today. Thanks, Jen. And it together, look forward to the road ahead. Same. All right. Bye-bye. Well, two of the best, you guys. I'm so happy to meet them. I'm so happy to elevate their work. I'm so happy to have them on the show. And so thank you for nominating two such fabulous people, Susan Ramirez with National Angels. And of course, you just heard from John Huckins with Global Immersion Project. I mean, phenomenal, phenomenal work. I mentioned it before, but as always, please make use of our transcript page. Amanda does a ton of work on that page. It's over at jenhatmaker.com um, under podcast. And the whole transcription is over there. If you would like to read the interviews, um, plus every single thing we mentioned, we link to their social media sites, their websites, books they wrote or mentioned, everything, everything, everything that you hear on the show, you can find um, in one spot over at jenhatmaker.com. So um, thank you for, for being such good listeners during the giving series, for engaging it so well, for sharing it with so many people. And um, uh, this series has been good for my heart and soul. Just a really good reminder that uh, folks are good. And people care and they are doing hard and good and important work out there. And it was just hopeful for me. I needed the hope. And so I'd like to thank all my guests 
on the giving series. And I'm very excited. Um, as we roll into the new year, oh my goodness, guys, we have such a lineup for you. Such an amazing series coming up. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be hopeful. It's going to be full of energy and motivation. Um, it's just exactly what you want in January. So I can't wait to bring it to you. Um, and thrilled in advance for all we are going to hear and learn about in the next series. So as always, you guys, thanks for being great listeners. Um, thank you for a wonderful 2018. We just could not have asked for more. So on behalf of our team, um, Amanda, my assistant and partner, my um, producer, Laura, and her entire crew over at Four Eyes Media, we are so thankful for you and thrilled to serve you. Cannot wait to turn the corner into a new year to bring you new guests and new ideas and great content. And it's our joy to do it. So guys, have a great one. We're back for another segment of Jen's Favorite Things. So this is the part of the show where I share about some wonderful companies that are producing amazing products and giving back to charitable organizations and really worthy nonprofits. Plus, they have exclusive discounts and extras just for you, our podcast listeners. So here are today's favorites. Pine Valley Outfitters. It's a small family business specializing in outdoor hammocks, so fun, and gear. So through their Hammocks for the Homeless mission, you guys, they donate 50% of profits to organizations taking a stand against homelessness. So use the code GEN10, like one zero, to receive 10% off your entire order and free shipping through the holidays. Visit Pine Valley Outfitters at gopvo.com. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.